And if you're just joining us this morning, if you haven't been with us for the last couple weeks, uh, I want to fill you in. We're in a sermon series called Rhythms of Life. And here's the gist. As humans, we crave repetition and structure and rhythm and habit to keep ourselves going. We need it. And we believe that Jesus has a rhythm for our lives. He leads us up and in and out and with, and at his very own pace, Godspeed. So we're giving each of these rhythms its own sermon as we walk through them and uh, as related to the book, Alistair was just mentioning it a little bit ago. So we started with upward. We considered our upward rhythm, which is our calling to make the one thing of our lives pursuing uh, Jesus onward and upward towards him. And then we talked about our inward rhythm, uh, which is we pursue Christ and as we reflect on him in our innermost being and as we're transformed into his image inside of us. Today, we'll look at outward. Why do we go out? That's what we're going to talk about. Uh, we often, I think, only think of outwards as like the tip of the iceberg of what outwards is. So we think of it like going to more than a roof with our community groups and serving or inviting a friend to church. And this is essential. This is outwards. But today we're going to explore the underbelly of it a little bit, um, the, the depth and the breadth of outwards and get a, a bigger picture of outwards. And in this Lenten season, particularly, we're forced to ask some difficult questions, I think, with outwards for our church. For example, why is this in our community groups the rhythm of life that we often neglect together. If one's going to be skipped, it's usually outwards. Or asking the question, am I the person in my group or in my church who takes some pride and, and feels good about myself because I actually care about evangelism or social action more than my other brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I that person? And really, at the bottom of it, the question is, why do we struggle to live an outward-shaped life? Why is it so hard? Why does it feel like we're fighting against gravity of sorts to, to love God first and our neighbors second, to serve and love with the gospel as Christ demands of us? So Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, I think gives us a great image to help us answer the question, why is it so hard? Luther is commenting on, on the book of Romans, and he's talking about what it's like being a sinner. Some great material. And he says, he says it like this. So scripture describes man as so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical, but even spiritual goods for his own purposes. And in all things, sinks only himself. So Luther describes living in sin as being curved in upon ourselves. And the worst part about it is that we usually don't even realize this. We're always fighting our inward propensity towards self-interest and self-love. We're curved in upon ourselves. The selfie, of course, is the cultural phenomena that represents this the best. We all know that well. Uh, but the, the fact that we're curved in upon ourselves is why living an outwards life is so difficult, why it feels like we're fighting against the tide. And this is exactly what the gospel calls us to do to reverse our inward focus, and to shift our focus out, to love and serve others. But how do we do this if we're all curved in upon ourselves? Well, do you remember the kids' song, Deep and Wide, Deep and Wide, There's a Fountain Flowing, Deep and Wide? I'm not going to sing it because you don't want me to sing it. Um, that's not my gift. 
But I think this song and this image of a fountain that flows deep and wide is a great guide for our exploration of outwards today. So we normally think about outwards when we talk about it. I think we're talking about the wide direction. What I was saying before, the going, the outreach, the service, the invitation. But I want to suggest there are two, two moves of outwards, two directions, the deep and the wide. They're both part of it. So here's our main idea today. Our outwards life must run deep if it is going to spread wide. Our outwards life must run deep if it's going to spread wide. What does this mean? Well, if outwards is like a fountain, let's think about that fountain, flowing deep and wide, the depth of outwards is the foundation, it's the reservoir of water under the fountain that keeps it going all the time, even in dry spells. And the breadth of outwards is the visible streams of water flowing out and sharing life and beauty. And we'll explore this idea from the Gospel of John, the passage Marley just read, uh, in chapter 20. And we'll see that that depth of outwards, the reservoir underneath the fountain, is intimacy with the crucified and risen Lord. And the breadth of outwards, the empowerment and the ongoing sustenance of this life is our contagious experience of the peace of Christ given through the Holy Spirit. So join me in John 20, starting in verse 19. We'll start with looking at the depth of outwards. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So to start off in 19, John gives us a pretty grim picture of what the church looks like at this point. Consider this group of, of people for a moment gathered together. The disciples are at a really low point, are they not? They've given up their careers. They left their nets by the lakeside three or four years ago. And they've spent the last period of time following Jesus around Galilee. They placed all of their hopes and expectations in Jesus, that he really would be the one to save the Jews and to save the whole world. And just a few days prior, these disciples stood in an angry mob, surrounded by their fellow Jews, their countrymen, and listened to them screaming for Jesus' crucifixion. Then they watched the Roman governor, Pilate, pronounce him not guilty. That must have been a blip of hope on the radar. But then being drowned out by the crowd screaming, crucify him. They stood near the cross and watched Jesus bleed and suffer. The same Jesus who they'd just been eating with the night or two before and who had washed their feet. They watched him die. The tomb was covered. The religious elite had successfully squashed their unruly movement that Jesus had been leading. Yet, to their unbelief on this Sunday, almost as a tease, Mary Magdalene had gone to the tomb where Jesus had been laid and brought back the most astonishing news. The tomb was empty. What are they to make of that? So John and Peter, remember, they ran to investigate. What is this all about? And discovered that sure enough, the body was gone. But what did this mean? Later that day, Mary came back to them and said that she had seen the Lord alive. 
Now, what, what were they to make of that? Did they believe her or not? We don't really know. Was it bewilderment or a lack of faith or chauvinism that kept them in their fear and confusion? We don't know, but whatever it was, here they are that night, that Sunday evening, in a pretty pitiful state, huddled together for fear of the Jews, John tells us. This would be the same group of Jews that were screaming to crucify Jesus a couple days before. And so it made the most sense, I'm sure, for them as Jesus' followers that they would be next, that they would be hunted down and killed to stamp out this cult that Jesus had started. That would be a likely conclusion. Now, it's a grim picture. But I want to stop here for a moment and ask you to consider with me the state of our church and the church in the Western world today for a moment. So Pew Research in 2016 and 2017 has published many articles documenting the rise of the religious nuns in our culture, particularly among the millennial generation, but even in others as well. And we've all heard these trends and we know them in our own lives. It's the great narrative that at last science has provided all the answers and there's no use of God anymore. Moreover, Christians are very out of touch and irrelevant with society and the story goes that the day of the church is past, and it's really only a matter of time before we all wake up and realize it's over. We don't need God. He doesn't exist. Now, I don't disagree that some of what I just said is true. The church is in a difficult state today, and in a place like Vancouver, you know as well as I do that being a Christian can be a difficult label. And there are immense challenges we face in witnessing to the gospel in a post-Christian culture. But guess what? Today isn't the low point. Look back with me at John chapter 20. This is the beginning of the church. This group, hopeless and faithless, marked by despair and fear. On this Sunday evening, persecution and death are their most reasonable outcomes for this small handful of Jesus followers. That's it. That's it. So before we feel too sorry about ourselves and the difficulties we face today, let's remember the church in John chapter 22, fearful for their lives and having no clue what to do. But something happens. This group of people becomes the church midway through verse 19. Let's look at verse 19. Until Jesus came and stood among them, there was no church. But Jesus did came, come, and he stood, and he spoke words of peace. He showed them the scars on his hands and on his feet. And when he did, they believed. And the creation started to groan because God was up to something new again. God was doing something revolutionary that had never been done before. And in this room of hopelessness and despair, the infant church was born and things started to change. We see it right then in verse 20. In verse 19, the disciples are marked by fear. And in verse 20, gladness. And what was that change? What causes that change? John says that Jesus showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. It's the embodied, real presence of Jesus Christ that sparks this change and births the church. So we said that outwards must be deep, right? If it's going to spread wide. Remember that? Well, this is the depth, the reservoir of outwards, encountering the wounds of the resurrected Lord. 
Notice there's two parts. They're both important. Jesus' wounds and his resurrection life. Jesus shows them his scars, the marks of his suffering and his shame. And he gives them peace from his lips. Peace be with you. Encountering the presence of Jesus is what is the catalyst. It's what makes the difference. And do you see how all these rhythms we're talking about are starting to connect? The up and the in and the out. We're called to intentionally move onward and upward towards Jesus. And we're called to behold Christ in our innermost being and be transformed into his image. This upward and the inward transformation is what makes the reservoir of our outwards life. It is the depth that sustains us. And as we move toward the crucified and the resurrected Lord, we will see his scars like the disciples did in John 20. We'll hear his words of peace to us. And we'll realize that we are worshiping a God who is radically for the other, who came for the other, and is sending us to be radically for the other too. Let's think about Peter's experience for a minute together. Decades later, Peter writes in an epistle in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's reflecting on Jesus, and he connects Isaiah's prophecy to Jesus when he says that by his wounds, by Jesus' wounds, we are healed. I can only imagine Peter writing these words and thinking back to this Sunday night after the crucifixion, when he was huddled together with the other disciples out of fear And Jesus appeared and showed them his wounds. Think about Peter particularly. Remember he'd betrayed Jesus early on that Friday morning and the night before, in his final hours before the cross. And now on Sunday evening, Jesus is coming to him alive and offering him peace and showing him his wounds. Peter's full restoration, of, of course, comes a bit later in chapter 21, when Jesus commissions Peter to be a leader in the church. And that story is what our church is actually named after because Peter denies Jesus and then is restored by Jesus, both at a fireside. It's a glorious story, but for today, let's just focus on this one part. It's Peter's encounter with the crucified and resurrected Jesus, with the living Jesus, where he is seen and known, where Jesus offers him peace and sends him out. It's this encounter that fuels the radical outward orientation of his life going forward, the breadth that we see in Peter's life going forward. In Acts, we see him leading the church. We see him powerfully preaching the gospel and many coming to to faith. We see him, of course, writing letters later on to the church, encouraging them, and the, the letters that are still exhorting and encouraging us today. But his outwards life only spreads so wide because it ran deep and was nourished by the very presence of Jesus. Henry Nouwen talked about this vocation of the Christian as the wounded healer. He said that by knowing Jesus intimately, particularly in the places of our wounds, we will be led outward too, like Jesus. His point is that our healing always has a redemptive outward direction. When we hear Jesus' words of comfort, peace be with you, and see that his wounds are for you and for me, we see that our own healing will not be just for us, but will also become a gift that we can pour into another. 
And of course, this takes time. And if you're in a particular season of healing from serious wounds, it doesn't mean you must immediately share your story. But I am saying that in some way, the healing happening in your life is meant for another. There's someone else who is suffering. And there, there's someone else. And the most powerful words that can be spoken to them is from someone who's walked a similar road of, of suffering, who can say, I know what it's like. It hurts. Let's do this together. This is the depth of outwards for the church in John 20 and for us. It's encountering Christ's wounds and his resurrection life and knowing that they're for us. Now let's continue on to the breadth. Look at verses 21 to 23. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now remember, we're witnessing the birth of this infant church here in a dark, dim, hopeless place. And when Jesus appears and turns their fear into gladness, he establishes peace. Jesus offers peace two times. The first blessing of peace, which comes in verse 19, is for the disciples. He comes to them first, except for Mary, who he really came to first. He shows them his wounds first. He abides with them in peace. Then immediately in verse 21, we see this peace just isn't just for them. Because he knew the disciples, just like us, were curved in on themselves and would want to hold and harbor this peace for themselves. It's our, it's our intuition, our inclination, because we're curved in our, on ourselves, to hold it for us. Isn't it the same temptation in our communities, right? When you find a place of life and rest from our hectic world, Maybe this is St. Peter's for you, maybe somewhere else, but you get cozy and comfortable and allow that curved in nature to blind us from the inherent outwardness of the gospel. It's so easy to do. But Jesus didn't just die for you and for me. He did, but he died and rose so that all may have life and have it to the full. So in the next moment, Jesus says to them again, peace be with you as the father has sent me even so I am sending you. He blesses them again with peace and he sends them out with it. This is the breadth of outwards. We have the depth, this is the breadth. We are sent out with the peace of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And notice how they go out. In the same way that the Father sent Jesus out and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're sent out because we worship an outward-shaped God we worship a Trinitarian God, a Father who sent the Son, and a Son who was sent to bring peace and salvation to earth, and a Holy Spirit who the Son breathed out, and in breathing out, sent the Holy Spirit to continue His work of redemption through us, the church. This is our God, and the same Spirit that Jesus breathed upon the disciples is the same Spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead, and is the same spirit that's alive in this room today. The first blessing of peace is for the disciples' healing. The second blessing of peace is their commission 
to go and share it with the world. When the Bible talks about spreading peace, I think we need to distinguish a little bit exactly what that peace means. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean peace of mind, as I often think about it. The peace of mind that you or I get when things in life are going our way. If this happens, or if I achieve that, like meeting your spouse, your perfect dream spouse, or having a happy family, or a comfortable bank account, or maintaining good health, maybe for you it's the dream of doing yoga at sunrise on top of a mountain. In short, peace of mind, as I'm defining it right now, means everything is going my way in life. Things are easy. I have no worries because for a blip on the radar, everything is good. Usually doesn't last. But here's the problem, just that, that this peace of mind is dependent on circumstances that we have relatively no control over at the end of the day. It's so fragile. It can be gone in an instant. This isn't the sort of peace that Jesus is sending us out with. The peace we're given, the peace we're sent out with, that he breathes on them through the Holy Spirit, comes from the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is a total vision of restoration with God. Shalom is what the Garden of Eden was like. It's healing in relationships with God and with others and with ourselves and with all of creation. Shalom is what we see glimpses of all throughout the Gospels and when, when Jesus is healing and doing miraculous things and saying miraculous words, like when uh, some friends lowered a crippled man through the, through the ceiling of a house and Jesus saw him and he forgave his sins and healed his body. That's shalom. It's when anxiety loses its grip over you. It's when you have that conversation with a spouse or a parent or a friend and you finally are honest and finally understand one another after many years. It's when a refugee family finds a new home and a new community, is given hope. It's when a sinner feels the tug of the Holy Spirit for the first time and turns her life over to Jesus. So the breadth of outwards is living as one who gets to share this shalom with the world. The peace of God as wide as the fountain will flow. We're given real authority to share this peace. The empowerment Jesus gives in verse 23 is to really proclaim forgiveness of sins to those who have penitent hearts and to truly warn those who refuse to repent that they're rejecting God's mercy. But why does God do it this way? Right? Why does he send us out with the Holy Spirit to share peace? Is it because he needs us like little minions to do his bidding? No, he sends us out not because he needs us to do things for him, but in order to bless us because he loves us and because he wants to share this experience with us. It's the greatest blessing for us as Christians to get to participate in this peacemaking in the world. This is why in the Beatitudes, and Jesus is talking about peacemakers, he says in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. They'll be called sons because they look like their daddy, who Isaiah called the prince of peace. Pursuing the secular peace of mind leaves us pursuing control over our circumstances, which often ends, at least for me, in exhaustion and despair. But being peacemakers with the Spirit is different. When we participate in God's work, 
God takes our curved in nature and he bends it outward and we're freed from that cage of self-interest and self-love. We're blessed by partaking in a larger story and resting in the promise that in our acts of faithfulness, however small they may be to us, we can trust that the Holy Spirit is working to do more than we can ever ask or imagine. Now, outwards must run deep first before it goes wide. Without the depth of fellowship with the crucified and the risen Lord, our outward fountain will run dry. Outwards always begins with our fellowship with Christ. No breadth of sharing peace will be sustainable without the depth. It just won't happen. We'll run out of steam. <laughs> At St. Peter's, this means that no, no Alpha Course or new social justice initiative, no new Outwards partner for our community groups, no new sermon series, no new community group curriculum, none of this is going to help us if we're not prioritizing drinking from the deep well of communion with Jesus. But I do believe that our outward rhythm at St. Peter's and in the church in the West more broadly, for that matter, will begin to thrive when our hearts sound like the Apostle Paul, when he cried, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. When that's the cry of our heart, we will go out. It is in this communion that we realize the peace of Christ that we're experiencing, that we thirst for, always comes to us on its way to someone else. So what's the starting point for outwards? It's nothing new. It's nothing fancy. It's cultivating communion with Jesus. Communally, that means prioritizing our weekly gatherings here, where we hear the word preached and, and when we share in the sacrament of communion. It's also gathering with other believers throughout the week, around tables, to share our lives, to encourage one another and pray for one another, like we do in community groups, but in other times too. In our individual lives, it's fighting the gravity of our world to be ruled by this thing, our iPhone, and choosing instead to submit ourselves first to this. It's picking up this one first in the morning before we pick up this one to check in with the world and the news and everything else that distracts us constantly. But picking up this one first and starting here, just to read, hope that didn't break. Just reading a scripture, just praying, spending time with Jesus. It's so hard to do, I get it, we're so distracted. But that's where we have to start and the depth, and the depth with Jesus. And then we can begin to really cultivate the breadth. And when we are filled up with Jesus, when we have some depth, something in our reservoir, the breadth is exciting. It's not burdensome. It's not, a, it's not a guilt thing. It's exciting. Our wounds become gifts that we want to share with others for their healing. We'll begin to ask questions like, how, how does God want to work through me at my workplace? Or how is my family being sent out to to spread peace? Or what unique opportunities might I have as a single person to love and serve others that other people might not have? Where is God sparking my heart to join him in renewal? When we're abiding with the crucified and resurrected Lord, the breath will come. It'll come because we won't be able to keep it to ourselves. And I think, to be honest, this is where our church needs to focus. 
Our outwards rhythm must run deep if it's going to spread wide. The reservoir can't be empty. But the good news is the well of living water from Jesus runs so deep. It never runs dry. It's always there. He's always offering us more. So let's start together by asking Jesus to pour his life into us. First, as we celebrate communion together today, ask him to bless you and I with this sustaining peace and ask him for boldness to share that and desire and yearning to share that, to pour it into someone else today and this week as well.